you're listening to the Down East Mike Podcast, the quirky little podcast from Maine. And now, your host, Down East Mike. Why, good morning, everybody. This is Down East Mike of the world-famous Down East Mike podcast, coming to you live from Down East, Maine. This is Down East Mike episode 114, news and commentary for Friday, February 2nd, 2024. It's Groundhog Day, but I think they're calling it something else now. Uh, I don't know if that's because of the little marmot there that they're trying to protect or what, but... uh, they did give him, an, I think they're giving it a different name. They want to retire him or something, do an algorithm. Our motto here at the Down East Mike podcast is some of this is whimsy, some of it's true, and the interpretation of it all is entirely up to you. We have no mean words, just wholesome goodness from Down East Maine. It's a historical, literary, auditory candy store, and we ask if you heard the bells on the door when you came in. We do that just to get warmed up a little bit. Today's episode, well, this is a good one. We got uh, raw eggs and Israeli oranges. We have, that was 1978. We have Russian nuclear satellite crash, uh, social security swindle, 1938. And then white leghorn pullets. Remember foghorn leghorn? I say, I say you're a chicken hawk. It's something like that. That's kind of like a bi-weekly bird is the white leghorn pullets. Let's go to, oh, it's a happy birthday to Rick in Portland. He's, he's somewhat recently retired. He likes to work with wood and he turns, he's got a lathe. He made a... a a home-built DIY lathe that he uses to turn out spindles and stuff. And uh, he makes furniture. I guess it's quite elaborate. It's got designs inset, like uh, walnut insets, little designs of uh, woodland scenes that he imprints on the bureaus and stuff that he makes. And, you know, the biggest part of his day is uh, that most difficult part of his work. Uh, that's... Uh, he used to be a doctor or something, Dr. Rick in Portland. He, the hardest part of his day is getting the equipment out the door because he's really book smart. But what he hasn't figured out is that when he makes the, uh, when he makes the bureaus, he's got to take into consideration the size of the door to get it out of the, of the house. So a lot of times what he does is he'll, he'll work on a project, you know, for like six months or so, and then it'll take him four months to disassemble it to get it out the door to deliver to somebody. He has to put it back together again, but he's practicing, and he's going to get it right one of these days. Let's roll it back to um, uh, Bangor 1978 on this day. Don Wood and Steve Roddick, they slipped down raw eggs in Seattle, they were in Seattle. Uh, it was their shot at the world egg beaten record. Roddick down 44 raw eggs before excusing himself and leaving. I wonder why he did that. But Wood persevered and he swallowed 50 in an hour for what he believes is the world record. It's a lot of eggs to take in all at once, isn't it? 
Okay, Israeli orange, this is 1978 too. Israeli oranges were injected with mercury, an Arab group claims plot to wreck the nation's economy. There's a report out of The Hague in the Netherlands where my people came from about 5,000 years ago. Western Europe issued an alert Wednesday for Israeli-grown oranges poisoned with mercury in a purported Arab-Palestinian scheme to sabotage Israel's economy. Just like today, U.S. government officials said there was no evidence that any of the tainted fruit had reached the U.S. and the Israeli embassy in Washington claimed none of the oranges were for sale in U.S. stores. So even if you went to look for them, you weren't going to get any. Five Dutch children were hospitalized for mercury poisoning last week after they ate the contaminated oranges and became ill. It was reported by the Dutch Health Ministry. When you think of Dutch Health Ministry, what do you think of? You think guys wearing wooden shoes, wandering around on the edge of the canal, handing out vitamins? That's the Dutch Health Ministry. Okay, there was an editorial. This is in the Bangor paper. They're not defunct yet, but they probably soon will be. Uh, 1978, U.S. Energy Secretary James Schlesinger, easy for me to say, has said it's in, inappropriate for satellites containing nuclear material to orbit the Earth. I think it's inappropriate, too. We can assume that this country is no longer launching satellites with nuclear reactors aboard. Schlesinger was reacting to the incident involving the Soviet satellite that crashed in Canada's Northwest Territory. Now, did you know that there were satellites that were nuclear-powered up there? No wonder they go so fast. This particular satellite came spinning to Earth at a remote and generally uninhabited location. They're calling that a mixed blessing. Thankfully, nobody was hurt by this radioactive intruder. And not so thankfully, the world may erroneously conclude that all of these man-made extraterrestrial vehicles are programmed to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere on a trajectory that is selective and safe. Not necessarily the case. They're going on. All right, so it gets better here. President Carter said Monday he'll ask the Soviet Union to stop launching nuclear power Earth-orbiting satellites. The president's statement was in response to the Russian satellite blowing up over the Canadian wilderness. So let's dig into that a little bit more. The recovery effort was called Operation Morning Light. It's got a certain ring to it. In the pre-dawn hours of January 24, 1978, a Canadian Mounted Police Corporal located in Hay River in the Canadian Northwest Territories reported a meteor sighting. 125 miles north in Yellowknife, I know somebody that lives there, a night janitor reported mysterious light streaking across the darkened sky. What these eyewitnesses actually saw was the re-entry of the Soviet satellite Cosmos 954. Kind of makes you wonder, whatever happened to 953 and 952, 957, where are those? It was launched into orbit on September 18, 1977. It was designed to cover the world's oceans at a 150-mile high orbit. The cylindrical satellite weighed approximately 4.4 tons, about two 
two times the Plowbaru. It contained a nuclear reactor, no problem, to generate power, and although it did not pose an explosive danger, the reactor produced radioactive isotopes, including strontium, cesium, and iodine. Iodine's good for you. There's one part of it if that landed on you. And it shows a picture here of some guys wearing, like, furry coats and stuff wandering around. The North American Aerospace Defense Command, it's NORAD, isn't it? The organization that tracks all the satellites and debris orbiting in space first noticed Cosmos slipping in its orbit right after its launch. And then they think, well, this is dangerous. This is not good. So they started alerting people. So they're, they're actually paying attention when their nuclear satellites falling our way. Team members from the DOE, Nuclear Emergency Support Team, they call it NEST, began deploying, preparing to deploy to the point of impact from locations in Las Vegas, Fairfield, uh, California, Washington, D.C., and Albuquerque, New Mexico. They can make a movie out of this if they haven't. So the... Um, Let's see, they got out there that when the re-entry occurred over Canada, U.S. President Carter contacted uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, well, not much change from today, to offer specialized U.S. capabilities in locating and isolating the errant satellite and its radioactive byproducts. That's no surprise that they were so eager to help because they wanted the technology, of course. The American response team, they had a, uh, under the direction of Nevada DOE manager, they arrived in Canada on January 24th, 1978. They reported to the Canadian forces. Fires recording, reporting for duty, sir. Okay, uh, so they get up there and they go up to Yellowknife and uh, we want to get to the recovery part. Based on the computer calculations, two characteristics of satellite debris were identified. A number of beryllium cylinders, rods, and products separated from the nuclear reactor in the satellite. The reactor core, which began to disintegrate over a range of 310 miles, would result in small radioactive particles, particulates scattered over a wide area. Not a big deal, just a few radioactive particulates, if you're particular about your particulates. Actual debris was located in four areas in the Northwest Territories. Plates, disc rods, other objects with radiation levels, and they go on to give the uh, radiation levels. Scientists could not collect the microscopic radioactive fission products that resulted from the reactor core disintegration. A survey conducted in the Great Slave Lake area of the Northwest Territories revealed elevated background radiation caused by the widely dispersed matter from the reactor core. Both Canadian and U.S. experts concluded that any health hazard created by the remaining particulate matter was minimal and would decrease with time. The team recovered more than 90% of the radioactive material in the reactor uh, inventory. So there, just to put your mind at ease, most of that was collected. But you kind of wonder, what about the other ones that went down that we never heard of, or if they did? And then we found the settlement of the claim where Canada sued the the, uh, it was the USSR at the time, Canada sued them, and the government of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics 
shall pay to the government of Canada the sum of three million Canadian dollars in full and final settlement. Settlement. So, what the Canadians didn't get there was that they should have been paid in rubles, and just getting paid in Canadian dollars. What's that? Twenty-five cents on the ruble. They, you know, they came out of that. They didn't do a very good deal. So they went to the. Uh, international court of law to get payment on that one they, and they got paid off and but you have to wonder if that real reactor itself is flying around somewhere let's go back to uh, 1938 this day 1938 february 2nd and they were talking about social security being a swindle a few weeks ago mr john lewis suggested that the federal government take five I think that's a million from the Social Security Reserve Funds and invest it in low-cost housing. That's just like today, isn't it? He thought it would not only stimulate the recovery and give aid to the unemployed, but prove a wide, a wise investment for the government. This is in 1938. Uh, what, what he's talking about here is that it, if they're the uh, Social Security was underfunded then, and they shouldn't be tapping into that money. Uh, it is legal, all right, but if it were done by an individual or a corporation, it would be called misappropriation of trust funds or by an even uglier name. The whole dizzy scheme is typical of New Deal finance, and its dangers are obvious. At the moment, the Treasury is enabled to get away with it because the fund has just started, Social Security just started, and not nearly as big as it will be, up to January 1st, $440 million in unemployment insurance taxes have been collected and spent. So they were just pulling that money in and spending it as quick as it came in. Kind of a scam. We'll see if there's any money left when we retire, right? There might be some there. Uh, what else do we have? There was a bread tax. They were having a bread war with Canada. A serious threat to New England bakeries, says Congressman. He declares the Canadian taxes U.S. bread at 49%, while our own bread's coming to the U.S. duty-free. He says the wages are driven down in a rustic and men are losing their jobs over that cheap bread from Canada. From 1934 to 1937, Brewster informed the committee that 17 bakeries were forced to close in Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont, throwing 100 persons out of employment. He urged adoption of a three-cent-a-pound tariff on Canadian bread to end the unfair competition. It's been so long since I've tasted Canadian bread, I couldn't tell you the difference between Canadian bread and American bread. We've got bakeries here still. Canadian bakers, he added, are able to undersell American bakers by five or more cents a loaf. 1,000 American jobs are a conservative estimate of the number affected by this present influx all along the line from the farmer to the miller to the baker and the delivery man. Boy, that's almost poetry, isn't it? Even Canada, he continued, applies the tariff on its own bread when it seeks to return to Canada after a day's journey about the States. So they make it Canada, ship it to the U.S., and ship it back. Let's pause for a drink right now. We'll get some water. 
It's tap water. It's pretty good. It's coming out of Mother Earth, don't you know? Okay, here's a story. It's 1938, too. They really were tougher then. Fred and Harry Austin walked from the upper end of Lake Sabatis today with their clothes frozen stiff. They were ice boating and plunged into a hole. They were good swimmers and got out, but the temperatures were 12 above zero. Arriving at their home in Sabatis, they put on dry clothing and returned to their ice boat. So today, if two guys went into Lake Sabatis, you'd have about 15 news crews there. It would make national headlines. They'd have rubber boats and men in dry suits pulling them out. And they'd be draining the pond and all sorts of stuff. These guys, they just go in the water. They go home, change their clothes, go back, right back to fishing. They were tougher then. And speaking of tough, how about uh, Ransford Shaw? This is a real-life story of somebody who walked 10 miles to school and back. Just like, you know, they, they kind of make fun of it, but he really did. Ransford Shaw, Ransford Shaw he's a, he was a Holton attorney in 1938. He was 81 years at, old at the time of this article. He recently recalled his early education and the hardships attending, uh, attending his acquiring his education. In his youth, he attended the old Holton Academy, now Ricker Classical Institute. Uh, all institutes are a little bit suspect, right? You don't want to be associated with going to an institute. Anyway, uh, twice a month, he walked to and from his home in Mars Hill, a round trip of some 10 miles. He was accompanied on these long treks, often ever over deep winter snows and in sub-zero weather, by another Holton Academy student, Dr. A.J. Fulton, who's now living at the age of 85 in the town of Blaine, these two school lads of long ago cooked their own meals in their room together uh, while they were attending Holton Academy, and now they often get together and talk of their school days when the county was young. Mr. Shaw had the ambition to go to college, but he didn't have 50 bucks to get into Bates. Uh, he studied law in the office of a prominent Holton lawyer and was finally admitted to the bar. He served in both the House and Senate uh, in the state legislature. He was a register of probate. They go on and list all the things he did. He is quoted relative to the future of a rustic. Our soil here is exceedingly fertile, and I feel that it is suitable for many other crops besides potatoes. Well, that was 1938, and I don't know how much... Do they do broccoli there now? Uh, there's as much undeveloped land now available for small farms as the vast tract already cleared and utilized mostly for potato raising. It'd be the salvation of a rustic to have this undeveloped land taken over by sustenance farmers who would raise diversified crops such as vegetables and grain. These small farms would also sustain a small number of cattle and sheep. The days of big waste and extravagance in this country are gone forever. Not much has changed. Uh, we have some little snippets here. Let's see, uh, the cost to Auburn of the snowstorm will exceed three thousand dollars. That was from eighteen eighty-eight. Actually, we're going to move on to our next story. Oh yeah, there it is. Tonight, this is eighteen eighty-eight. Auburn will light up with twenty-nine electric lights. The electricity will be supplied by the new power plant built at the dam, uh, 
across the little Androscoggin. The Lewiston and Auburn Electric Light uh, Company has a large number of uh, applicants for power, and a great many citizens have applied for incandescent house lamps. That's a good story, right? Electricity, 1888. How are we doing on time here? We're doing okay, right? We can plug along. How about this one? This is a... This is from 1974, but it's recounting uh, bedtime in, in the earlier time, like the 1850s or 60s. As soon as it was dark under the table, it was bedtime in the long ago when candles lit up the old rafted kitchen and firelight fl flamed in the fireplace under the chin-high mantel. That's what we got going on down below, the little fireplace and then the chin-high mantel. It's an interesting uh, height measurement. The tall hooded grandfather's clock struck the sleepy hours in its corner. Father rose from his creaking ladderback chair. That would be me. He knocked the ashes out of his pipe against the chimney piece and put out the cat, not into the snowy night, but into the barn, where Tom could cuddle down in the warm-scented hay with only his pink nose showing beside White Star's crib. Mother was busy at the fireplace with a long-handled warming pan and filling it with red-hot coals to plunge between the frigid blankets in the north chamber before the boys went up to bed. The firelight brightened her cap strings while her long white apron shone like polished glass in the blaze on the hearth. There was a great to-do in the corner where the boys pulled off their cowhide boots, nearly decapitating each other in the rowdy process. Boys, boys, the father yelled, but they paid little heed, always intent on a scuffle indoors or out. Those boys were rambunctious. The kettle was heating on the crane for the drink that father would mix up good and hot to warm their stomachs and cheer their hearts before they raced up to the icy chambers on their reluctant way to bed. They didn't want to go to bed at all. From the upper closet beside the chimney, father drew out the fixings, and having stirred and mixed the hot drink, they all had a sip from the gay-flowered mug before father drained its contents with a long-drawn ah. Fortified thus, he reached up for the high candles on the mantel shelf. The little girls were dawdling over the task of tying up hot bricks in flannel. Into the parlor bedroom, they followed Mother, where the white canopy loomed like a ship's great white sail against the darkness. Out came the trundle bed from under the big one, the little bed underneath, and down peeled the covers, just big enough for the two youngsters to crawl into. It was as cozy for them as two bugs in a rug. Their little faces, framed in pointed nightcaps, were especially flower-like when seen from above. Brandishing the warming pan like a real major general going into battle, Mother mounted the winding stairs. Shadows, grotesque silhouettes of all the family with their lighted candles trailed after them. In the low-eaved, unfinished chamber frost cracked like thunder across the beams. They could only stand upright in the center of the room. It was something like tenting out, only summer was never like this. Under the patchwork quilts, the feather beds 
foamed like new rising yeast on the Lincoln and Jenny Lind beds. Come children, mother, call down the stairs to the last lingering youngsters. The beds are all turned down. Hurry. In their flannel nightgowns, there was a great bobbing up and down of prayers, wrapped up in shawls with nightcaps tied over their heads because the chambers were drafty where the wind whistled around the window frames. The children bundled into bed. Each one had a hot brick at his feet to toast his toes on, but no matter how warm he was, the frost would be white along the beams and every nail would be furred when morning came. Having tucked in her brood and having bestowed a good-night kiss on each rosy cheek, Mother blew out the candles and, taking up the last one, slowly descended the creaking stairs. Mighty cold night, Father was saying as he raked over the ashes and banked the fire. Be twenty below tonight or I miss my guess. Already is, Mother remarked as she moved a few plants and little pots of herbs away from the window where Jack Frost was busy with his magic traceries. The wind whistled around the corner of the house, came up quick and gave the structure a shove with his iron-clad shoulder. Mother drew the big armchair out from the corner, gave it a twist and miraculously turned it into a table. There she spread out the cloth and laid a few pieces of cutlery in the plates on the homespun napery. She set a porringer of porridge on the hearth to keep warm and replenished the kennel hanging over the fire. There were so many things to do before she could lay her head on the pillow. It was so cold in the parlor bedroom when she blew out her candle that she heard the frost crackle. She drew back a curtain from the small paned window, and a few stars were shining in the heavens with their little pinwheels of fiery light. A great black shadow of the corn crib fell across the snow. Be thankful, said Mother, that we have a roof to our heads. It was a cold winter night. Now, I've actually, I've experienced all those things, or most of them anyway, the cracking of the timbers and the frost on the nails in the bedroom. But there's such a process of them going, getting ready for bed. They must have been exhausted doing that every day. Some more water. You know what? I'm going to show you guys right in front of the fireplace. If you've never seen one of the little uh, bed warmers that they talk about, I've got one right here. I'm going to take it over to the camera. Hold on just a second. I guess you can't really see the whole thing. Let me lift that up one more time. So that's the bed warmer, and they'd fill that up with... Uh, with uh, coals and uh, or warm brick and, and you, you fill that up and you put it underneath the blankets and get the bed warm sort of like an electric blanket for old times uh, I've used that one actually before I'm not sure where it came from but it's pretty uh, it's pretty pretty old and it still works very well made 
Uh, let's see if we have any other stories here for you because we are getting a little bit uh, a little bit late in the day here. So let's see. Uh, I think we'll skip right ahead to uh, Frankie. Yeah, three or four weeks ago, a boy threw a hard snowball which hit Frankie. He's the son of Mr. Enoch Perkins of Auburn. On the chin, it hurt him severely. A large and painful abscess formed on the spot. For about three weeks, the little fellow had subsisted on a few spoonfuls of nutriment daily, not being able to move his jaws, and was almost starved when a surgeon decided to lance the abscess. On Thursday, the boy was very weak but had a good night's rest, and he's now convalescent. It was a serious result of rough sport. Throwball, this snowball is very bad. Uh, we're going to go to, oh, here's our final story. Okay. Granville Gould of Turner is said to be the most enthusiastic poultry raiser in this vicinity. Mr. Gould was formerly a Lewiston mechanic. He became an invalid and he moved on a farm to better his health a few years ago. He has 50 as handsome white leghorn pullets as ever broke through 50 eggshells, and he says they have nearly supported himself and his wife during the past year. With the eggs they laid in nine days, he bought a nice barrel of flour at one time last summer. They lay two dozen eggs daily at this unfavorable season. And it's not surprising that Mr. and Mrs. Gould are on very intimate terms with their pullets. They are all named, and every pullet is acquainted with its address. Mr. Gould's hen house is as neat, warm, and cozy as love in a cottage. It is equipped with the modern conveniences for poultry. There are snug boxes for the pullets to lay in, and boardwalks leading to the boxes for the pullets to walk on. A gentleman who called on Mr. Gould one of these cold days found a handsome rooster in the wood box of Mr. Gould's kitchen. I wouldn't have that rooster freeze his comb for $50, said Mr. Gould. And that leads us to our bi-weekly bird. It's the leghorn chicken, foghorn leghorn. The leghorn Livorno Livornese is a breed of chicken originating in Tuscany in central Italy. They were first exported to North America in 1828 from the Tuscan port city of Livorno on the western coast of Italy. They were initially called Italians, but by 1865, the breed was known as Leghorn, the traditional uh, anglicization of Livorno. And it goes on and on about being introduced. Um, the origins of Leghorn are not clear. It appears to derive from light breeds originating in rural Tuscany. And... We wanted to get down to the, they have three colors, black, white, and brown. They have a rose, comb, light, and dark brown were added in 1883. And then it goes on about the different types. And we want to get to their, uh, their weight size is 5.3 to 6 pounds. And according to the British standard, full full grown one weighs about 7.5. That's a big chicken. They're good layers of white eggs. They lay an average of 280 per year and sometimes reach in 300 to 320 with a weight of at least 55 grams. I think that's enough for our podcast for today. We've been away for a while, but we're back and we're in rare form, we must say. Until next time, this is Downey's Mike, wishing you and your loved ones a day that is full of grace, love, and kindness. We'll see you.
Yeah. 